0: There and welcome to another episode of The Bible. Wait, what? Yes, this is the podcast that unravels the mysteries of the Bible's most perplexing, puzzling and thought-provoking passages. My name is Rowan and each session I'm joined by a member of our team at C3 Church, Camden, Picton and Thoreau, as they quiz me on some of the more complicated, confusing, challenging and even confronting passages that we read in our weekly Bible reading plan. understand that reading the Bible can be a challenging and perplexing experience. Many people just don't know where to start, they get confused, and so they give up. Well, that's why this podcast exists, to equip you with the tools and the knowledge to explore the richness and depth of the Bible for yourself. So grab your Bible, take a deep breath, and join us as we explore this week's passages. learn more about us or to get in touch with us at C3 Church Camden, Picton and Thoreau, visit any of our three locations websites. That's c3camden.church, c3picton.church and c3thoreau.church. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube just by searching for any of our locations names. So without any further delay, let's dive into today's conversation.
1: Hey, hello everyone! Welcome and
0: welcome, Pastor Rowan. Thanks, Jeff. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Bible. Wait, what? <laughs>
1: uh, it makes me laugh every time I hear that. It's oh, such, yes. such a
0: great title, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know how catchy it is, but we'll blame ChatGPT if it isn't catchy. Yeah. But it is. It, it tells the story of what it's like to read the Bible, doesn't yeah. it?
1: Well, I believe um, I believe quite a few people are listening to the podcast, yes, which is fantastic, we are. and yep. I, I'm I'm so pleased about that that. You know that uh, people are interested in the Bible. Mm, that's you know?
0: that's what was the heartbeat of this was that people would feel like they could study the Bible for themselves. For sure, yeah.
1: And, yep. and I'm also really excited to to hear all the different people that are speaking on the podcast. That they so many people seem to know about the Bible. Yeah, it's, it's really it's, encouraging.
0: It's been a great delight you know? for me to sit and listen and hear different perspectives and yeah. have different questions and hear different thoughts from people in their study. It's been been wonderful. It has been good, and, yeah.
1: it, and it, may, it it makes us feel good that we must be teaching something, doing something yes, right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, there's getting out there, and
0: people are studying <laughs> yeah. the Word for themselves. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, yep, for sure.
1: So today we're going to be um, having a look again, at, well, we're finishing up um, the book of Samuel. Yeah, pretty much the end of David's Samuel. life.
0: Yeah. Yep. So, um, been in David for a couple of months. Yeah. So we're going to
1: be reading from uh, chapter 20 today. From 2 Samuel, but I wanted to just go back a little bit into chapter 19 so we kind of get a bit of context of what's happening here. So, as is usually the case, there's a bit of arguing going on between the tribes of Israel and the tribes of Judah. Mm -hmm. And um, in verse, and the guys from Judah come in, they took David uh, across the river, I think it was. Um, with some of the Israelite guys, but the the other guys from Israel weren't happy about it, and they come and they said, you know, what do you think you're doing taking the king away from us? It's yeah.
0: almost a repeat of what happened when he first became king. Yeah. This is after Absalom's rebellion, and it's like the Judah tribe are trying to claim him for themselves all over again, yeah, isn't that's it? That's right, it's, yeah. it's very similar. To the patterns keep repeating themselves.
1: And, and in, in verse 43 in chapter 19, The men of Israel come along and they say to Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. So we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why then do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah uh, press their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel. So the men of of Israel are, are... I guess that's because they've got 10 tribes Yes, that's right.
0: They're claiming that we've got 10 tribes, yeah. we've got 10 claims.
1: So they're, they're, they're saying, you know, we've, we've got David. We, yeah. we want David. You Just know, because
0: we, he's of Judah, he, but we've got as much of a share, if not more, than you have. That's right.
1: Now, next verse, which is uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Now, a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and he shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. So all of the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bikri. What a turnaround that was. Pretty instant, wasn't it? They, f- they seem to be just fighting for David and then and there's go, one guy, Yep, you know, he comes along and goes, no.
0: That's right. He He seizes the moment. He's going, well, I'm going to take this moment for myself. And where is he from, Jeff? What tribe is he from? Benjamin, wasn't it? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the same tribe as King Saul. So we don't know anything about this guy, but chances are he is um, also um, involved in, you know, the. uh, he's also involved in uh, Saul's heritage there somewhere along the line. He's going to seize this moment to turn them all to himself. Yep.
1: Yeah. So I think it really, it shows us there, doesn't it, that... We have to be wary that one charismatic man mm. can turn a whole country away from what they believe in.
0: That's a good call. And we've seen that throughout history, haven't we? We have, yeah. Yeah. Um, charisma alone, uh, well, put it, put it this way, um, following alone is not automatically a sign that you're in the will of God it can be a big church with a big following doesn't automatically just assume either God's blessing that sometimes it can be built on the back of a charisma of a man or a woman, but that person could be gathering a flock for themselves rather than pointing them to Jesus. That's right. So, you know, John Kelly talks about his organization is grow a healthy church, not grow a big church. Yes. Um, I remember him saying, you know, he said, not everything that's healthy grows. Mm. He's had cancer, you've had cancer, Mm. not everything that's healthy grows. Sometimes things can look like they're growing but they're unhealthy. Mm. So um I think that's not always the sign. The world looks at that and goes, Oh, you know, that's got a big following. Big Sheba's got a big following, but everyone followed him. But didn't mean he was right in his in his leadership, was it? He? he was mm. he was um taking away from King David.
1: That's right. And we have to be careful, don't we? Not mm. to not to be carried away by some celebrity or uh, yep. some government official or whatever it may be, yep. or, or a church leader, like you said, yep. that can lead us astray. Especially if if we think of end times and you know the antichrist is going to come and mm. fool people, mm.
0: you know, yes, that's um, right. There's a warning there that you know that the spirit of antichrist will drag people away and yes. entice people away. Yeah, don't fall for everything. Exactly. Yep. If you believe everything, you'll fall for everything.
1: Well, that's true. Mm. And that <laughs> that's pretty well what. Yep. What we see happening. Yep. Everywhere at the moment. It's human nature. I think. We just want people to think. Stop and think about. Come on, things Jeff. Before Reach it. it. Think
0: for <laughs> yeah. yourself. Hang on,
1: I've got to save that for next time I preach. Oh
0: yeah, think, think.
1: <laughs> okay, so, so, uh, so Sheba drags all the, these guys away, and David says, yeah, let's get after this Sheba character. We'll, we'll knock him on the head, and we'll get the men back." So, um, so all the men, uh, so the men of Israel have deserted David. Um,
0: one little point that's worth noting here: that Joab, who had been commander of mm. David's army, has been uh, demoted, and uh, Amasa has been put in place now.
1: Yeah, that's right. But yeah, okay. So let's read in verse eight. So they, the these guys, had come together, and it says while they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa, who was the,
0: like Pastor Owen just said, he and he'd been demoted the, because Joab had led David's men against Absalom's rebellion, but Joab had defied David's command and killed Absalom. And so he got demoted for that. Right,
1: okay. So Amasa comes along uh, to meet them and Joab's there (coughs) wearing his military tunic and strapped over it at the waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. He stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Never a good thing to drop your weapon. Never a good thing. Not in those days anyway, Mm -hmm. Uh, Joab, so Joab's there and he says to Amasa, "Uh, how are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand and Joab plunged it into his belly and his intestines spilled out
0: on the ground. Hello. This sounds familiar, doesn't it, Jeff? It does.
1: It's another stab in the gut.
0: Oh my goodness. Stab in the gut. This is, Mm. Joab's got a habit of doing this.
1: Mm. Mm. And, and uh, it says that he died without being stabbed again. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bikri. So they're still chasing this
0: Jew, this, this uh, Israeli rebel. Usurper. Yeah, yeah usurper. This, this rebel. Yep. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, chapter, uh, verse 11, one of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, whoever favours Joab. And whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road, and the man uh, saw all the troops come to a halt there. And so he drags the body off the road, and just apparently
0: just leaves him there. Gets him out of out of eyesight, so that they carry on. Yep, a
1: bit of an undignified end. Oh, totally, the poor old fella. But anyway,
0: he did nothing wrong.
1: Um. And then Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel uh, and through the entire region of the Bikrites who gathered together to follow him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba in Abel, Beth-Makar. They built a siege ramp up to the city and it stood against the outer fortifications. But while they were battering the walls to bring it down, this wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. He went forward, uh, he went toward her and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, Listen, listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, Long ago they used to say, Get your answer at Abel and settle it. We are peaceful here. And Joab says, Yeah, okay, righto, what have you got to say? And the woman uh, says, what do, what do you actually want? And um, he says, We want Bikri. And the woman says to Joab, Well, we'll get him, and we'll chop his head off, and we'll throw it down from the wall. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bikri, this charismatic Mate, fella, leader. Yep. And they threw it to Joab. He sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab back to the king in Jerusalem.
0: Civil war averted. Yes. But not in a crystal clear way because in the middle of this civil war being averted, is Joab once again proving himself to be troublemaker. Yeah, that's right. And killing, killing someone because he's jealous. Yeah. He's jealous because, because um, he, he believed a narrative. He believed he was doing the right thing when he killed Absalom um, even though David had said, don't kill Absalom, he was convinced he was doing the right thing. And so Joab, and he was demoted for that reason. And he's just jealous. He, one of the things about Joab is he's living in his own world. He is convinced he's right. And he, you'll see this with Joab. No one, there's no one speaking into Joab's life. There's no teacher. He's convinced he's right all the time. And because of that, he makes some really bad choices. So we need to have people in our world who we, who we speak to, who we seek wise counsel from. You know, David was always inquiring of the Lord. We don't see that of Joab. He wasn't inquiring of the Lord. He thought he knew best, and he killed jo- he, he, he killed Amasa. Yes, and he—you know—he averted civil war here, but he did it in his own strength, not in not in God's. Mm.
1: Yep. And but you know, he—it it kind of works out okay for for him for David though, um,
0: for, for Joab. Yes, it does. For now, now. For, for now, yeah, yep. it's going to co- ultimately it's going to cost him his life yep. under under Solomon's rule many years later. But at this point, yeah, he gets away with it. Yeah, there's be. this thing. There's this thing about Joab. David has this constant refrain where he says, oh, "You sons of Zeruiah, what do we have in common?" You see this constantly, time and time again. It was like David, and he even says about Joab, he says, "I'm powerless to do anything about him." It's for some reason he was frustrated by Joab, but he he never felt like he could bring justice to Joab. There was some sense of mm. family connection there. Maybe he felt like Joab had stayed with him through his wilderness wanderings against Saul, but he could never – he brought justice against everybody else, but he could never bring justice against Joab. In the end, he leaves it to Solomon to do it. He goes, you, you sort it out. Mm. So there was some something inside David's heart there where he just couldn't be the leader he needed to be. Yeah. Joab should never have got away with. Him. If Joab had been judged fairly and David had been a fair judge right back when he killed Abner, Amasa wouldn't have ever been in this situation. Mm. So, um, yeah, he just couldn't bring himself. And I think as a leader that I've challenged by that because some people are influential in my world and sometimes I, I need to, for the sake of other people, I need to not listen to that voice. So I need to silence that voice because i I'm, maybe I'm a fearful of the re- repercussions of what that person might do to me, but I've got to be thinking about other people who yeah. are suffering because I'm bowing down to the will of one person at the expense of others. And I've had that in my life. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what went on with David and Joab. It was a a strained relationship. Yeah. Especially
1: when you're the shepherd of the flock. Yes, that's right. You do have a responsibility, don't you? Yeah, and
0: you never want to hurt anybody. But sometimes if someone is mistreating somebody else or mistreating everybody, I've got to make sure that I put other people's priorities before my own. And that might mean that I have to put myself out there and call someone to account. It doesn't happen very often, but I've had people in our church who, who really do manipulate and scheme and it's all about them and... And I feel afraid to do anything about it, but I've got, to, yeah. I've got to silence that because it's not good for the rest of the flock.
1: Yeah. Well, it can be hard, can't it, when you're a, you know, a gentle sort of yes. person yeah. to have to stand up and yep. And you think, oh, come on, Lord, just, can't yeah. you just move them on? Can't you just move them on, <laughs>
0: Lord? So I, the rest of the, but no, as a leader, as a shepherd, sometimes a shepherd has to protect the sheep. Yeah. yeah. And David didn't do that well with Joab. But he got away with this anyway, and uh, he managed to reunite the kingdom under himself.
1: That's right, yes. And so the kingdom's reunited again um, in this chapter.
0: In this chapter, yep.
1: Well, pretty well. Yeah, pretty much. I think the men all went back and, you know, they got rid of that speed bump in the road. Yep. That fella. And um, things went back to the way they should have been, I suppose.
0: Yeah, that's right. For a while. Yeah, exactly. So after Absalom's rebellion, (laughs) Absalom's rebellion's brought down, David reunites the kingdom again. Yeah, Yep, that's right. That's what happened in Second Samuel 20, yeah.
1: What a job these kings have. They've got to just keep trying to patch things up all the
0: time. Mm-hmm. It's the leader's call, isn't it? Problems. Guess, Pastor Phil says, you know, is. a leader's a leader's success is determined by their ability to solve problems. Yeah. Yep, that's what it boils down to. Well, that's right, yeah. You're always solving problems.
1: Yeah, if you stick around in any church long enough, you're going to see this. Yep. You know. There's problems. Problems that need to be solved
0: over time. You got it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right, 2nd Samuel 20 anything else there you wanted to uh, do? No, that
1: was that was it I think, mate. All right, we'll
0: 20. go to 2nd Samuel 21.
1: Yeah. Ooh. Okay, here we go. 2nd Samuel chapter 21. I want to read the first 6 verses and we'll have a little chat about them. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said to him, It's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed, and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. Once again, it's a, it's a it seems pretty harsh.
0: Oh, I can't, and I can't fathom this one.
1: No, and these guys. I don't see how this is going to help them at all. No. When they're, they're, there's the possibility of maybe getting silver and gold, which you think, yeah, well, that'll do. Give us some land or give, some give silver, well, something. Give us some restitution. Yeah. Yeah. But they're like, but it, it doesn't make sense to me that that they say in verse four, we have no right to kill anyone, but then they say we want seven of these guys.
0: Yeah, so that's them saying we don't have the right to do it because we're not the king, we're not the people in authority, but you have the right, Yeah. so can you do it for us? It's a little bit like the Jews handing over Jesus and saying, we don't have any right, but the Romans do, so you do it for us. That's what's going on when they say they don't have any right. It's not that they don't want to. They want to kill, but they don't have the right to kill. Mm. Um, They would have been up on on murder charges themselves if they had have. What messes with my head in the story is just that how does killing seven descendants of Saul make restitution for Saul's wrongdoing doing doing against the Gibeonites? So these Gibeonites are the dudes in the book of Joshua who showed up with their, I think it's the ones, showed up with their um, moldy bread and shoes worn out and said, said, uh, you know, we want to be – we want to be safe. I remember doing it with Kenny. We were talking yeah. about it like the, like a scene from uh, Monty Python. Monty Python yeah. You know, we, we, want to, we want to be free and we, yeah. want, we don't want you to kill us. And that's these guys. And Saul just goes, he ignores that pledge and just tries to obliterate them. So that's what Saul did. I'm okay with that. I'm okay that that was an injustice. They'd gone against their word. I just wrestle with what's really going on. Because the story will go on and say here that David does this. He offers up mm. these seven sons. He yeah. spares Mephibosheth. But he offers up seven others, and then they get killed, and then it says the Lord repent. You know, the Lord turn healed the healed the land. He stopped the famine. I'm sorry, I I just don't see how that is the nature of God.
1: Yeah, I find it confusing. This this story.
0: This is a real wait, what story?
1: It is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I've got that written at the top. Have you? Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. It just doesn't make whole lot of sense to me. Maybe it requires a bit more thought.
0: Yes. Yeah, so anytime you get these wait, what moments, it's an invitation into deeper thought, yeah. deeper conversation yep. to go, what's really going on here? Why is it that they, why is it that David offering up seven seemingly innocent men? We've got no reason to assume that those guys are, are wrong themselves. Why is it that offering those up would somehow appease the wrath of God?
1: Hmm. And why does God wait to to bring this famine on while David's in charge instead of-
0: When Saul was in charge. When Saul
1: was in charge, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many years later this, from all accounts, is a few years later.
0: Yeah. So these last few stories, I think they're they're not necessarily in chronological order. order. We've kind of finished the whole rebellion thing and now there's just a few little stories in David's poem that's tacked on. So it may have happened earlier in his career. We don't really know. Um, But I think it is- it is worth wrestling with we probably should have done this you know, i probably should have wrestled with this to so we, to, so that our listeners could have a clearer picture on it um, i would what i would be doing in this story is i'd be going straight to commentaries i'd be googling questions like how did killing seven of david's uh, saul's descendants appease god's wrath mm. you know and see see what it says i'd start with throwing that you know throw that into google or throw that into Chat GPT. Let's just do that and see if we get some ideas. Just so our listeners, because we haven't done this for a while. Yeah. How did killing seven of Saul's descendants appease God's wrath? Now, just in what chapter are we in? Twenty. 21. Wrath in Second Samuel 21. So I am using, just for our listeners, I am using... Um, chat GPT here. So there's just a warning that, you know, you don't take everything you say here. This is just to give you ideas and you go and actually find commentaries, yep. but it gives you a help. The biblical account deals with involving the, yeah, the background to this event is that Saul had tried to exterminate the Gibeonites, breaking Israel's ancient oath to let them live. The oath has been made by Joshua and the leaders of Israel in Joshua 9 as a consequence of Saul's actions against the Gibeonites. A famine had struck the land. We know that. David sought to understand the reason for the famine. After inquiring of the Lord, he was told that it was because of Saul's bloody actions against the Gibeonites. So to rectify the wrong, to appease God's wrath, David approached the Gibeonites and asked them, this is exactly what we just read. They requested seven of Saul's descendants be handed over to them and David complied. Handed over the two sons of Rizpah, and some translations refer to her as Michal. Okay, so it could have been Michal. The Gibeonites were executed then And after this, the famine was lifted. It's important to note that this account raises a variety of theological and ethical questions. This is what I was wanting to get Mm. to. Particularly around the concept of collective guilt and retribution. The idea that a current generation could suffer punishment for the sins of the previous one is challenging and in many ways contrasts with other biblical teachings, such as Ezekiel 18, where it says that a man shall die for his own sins, not the sins of his descendants. I'm assuming that's what Ezekiel 18 says. I think it does. However, the passage reflects the ancient Near Eastern understanding of justice, covenant, and retribution. I'm going to have to ask more questions of chat GPT there, but that's what I was going to say is that even though it's strange to us and it doesn't make it right, it's reflecting that that was a common practice yeah. in that time, that, that a descendant could be held accountable for the sins of the previous generation and that they could appease it. So that would have been a common practice across the ancient Near East, but it wouldn't have been a God- it's not the way, It's not. it doesn't fit with the character of the Lord that we know. The ethical question that's raised, the theological question that's raised is what do you do with the literal translation of scripture? Because it says in this passage, after David did this, the anger of the Lord was ceased. Mm. So we now have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? Is that true? Or is that the writer's perception of reality? Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. What do you think? I guess we need to look a little bit closer at the oath that Saul broke. Mm -hmm. What was the oath that the… We wouldn't touch them. They would become water carriers and woodcutters. Yeah. That we won't kill them. So they broke the oath, definitely. So
1: when he made that oath, did he make that oath before the Lord? Did he say it's, it's, you know? Yep. I stand here before the
0: Lord, yep, and hand on the Bible, yep. sort of thing. Yes, basically, yes. It was the oath. In this, in, I mentioned this on the podcast with Kenny. I remember, in the midst of, in the midst of all of the bloodthirstiness that goes on, one of the codes was that an oath was binding. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent binding. Yep. So yeah. there has
1: to be some sort of rule, doesn't there, in warfare? Yes,
0: that's right. And and, and, and the oath life. was a big deal. Yeah, to them. And in many ways, today we would consider ourselves more. Um, socially uh, advanced, but we don't hold an, an a word of an oath anywhere near as closely as they did in their day.
1: Yeah, and and back, you know in those days that the oath was a big deal. But Jesus says, just let your yes, yes be yes. yes. That's, right. You know, That's right. You know. That's what Jesus
0: says. Yep. So, which is basically, if we say yes to something, mm. we're, it's an oath, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know. So there's no question in my mind that what Saul did was absolutely wrong. He had got violated an oath. Where the question comes is. How does killing seven descendants of Saul then appease that wrongdoing, atone for that wrongdoing?
1: Yeah. There must be a a major importance in keeping oaths. You know, I I always think about when John the Baptist was beheaded um, because what was the name of the fellow that had him beheaded? Uh, Herod. Herod. Yep. So Herod made an oath that he would give... Yes, he was binding he to her. Or too. What, whatever she was. Um, give you whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, you know. And she said, I want the head of David and he, uh, of John. And and he was like, Well, I, I can't. I don't really I don't want, want to. I don't want to,
0: but because of my dinner guests and because of my oath, I have, I have to, to do, to do it. it. An oath was a big, yep. big deal, wasn't yep, it? So that's right. Breaking an oath, I guess, was, was a big, a huge big deal, deal. too. Yeah, so there's yeah. no doubt about that. The breaking of the oath, the issue then becomes what well, I wrestle with is. But this isn't again, this is innocent people dying. Well, yeah. Yeah. And maybe there's a bit of, you know, picture of Jesus. Here here we go. I've just asked, while you've been talking, (coughs) I've just said, how does killing innocent men appease the wrongdoing? That doesn't sit with the nature of God. ChatGPT says to me, you're touching on a complex and difficult issue that many theologians and readers of the Bible have to grapple with. The story in 2 Samuel 21 indeed poses challenging questions about God's nature and the concept of justice in the Hebrew Bible. Here are a few points to consider. One, the historical and cultural context. Biblical narratives often reflect the cultural, historical, and soci- societal norms of the time. The idea of collective punishment or retribution was not uncommon in the ancient Near East. In many ancient societies, the actions of a leader or a member of a family could have bring consequences on the entire family. Yes, we agree with that the Gibeonites' retribution. It's important to note, this is the second one, to note that it was the Gibeonites who requested the death of Saul's descendants as recompense for the wrongs that Saul had committed. David's agreement might be seen less as an endorsement of that act, in the act's inherent justice, and more as a political move to restore peace and rectify an oath that had been broken. So that argument would say, well, David wasn't David didn't think it was going to work either, but he was just trying to keep the peace. Yeah okay. still that bothers me that he would hand over innocent men. This is a three complex portrayal of God. The Hebrew Bible often presents a multifaceted view of God. At times, God is portrayed as a merciful and forgiving at other times, he may be demand he may appear demanding of justice and wrathful. This multifaceted portrayal reflects the diverse traditions, authors, contexts within which the biblical texts were written. Four, question and wrestling. Many many readers, both ancient and modern, have struggled with challenging passages like this one. The Jewish tradition, for example, encourages questioning and wrestling with the text. Theologians and scholars often engage with these passages, seeking to understand them in their historical context and drawing out lessons or principles that might be relevant for contemporary readers. And fifthly, personal interpretation. Ultimately, one interprets and understands such passages is influenced by our personal beliefs, theological perspectives, and the teachings of one's faith community. It's perfectly reasonable for this story to raise questions and challenges for you, as it does for many. Engaging with these difficult passages and grappling with their implications can lead to a deeper understanding of one's faith and the biblical text. Mm. I like that because it doesn't mean that there is a one-size fits-all answer for yeah, this. Sure. These are these are passages that we're only guessing what was the reason behind the narrative, mm. where where it becomes a problem, I think for us as Protestant evangelicals, is much of the narrative that we have been raised on, is that Scripture is without error; it's inerrant. Mm-hmm. So when we read something that says God settled the injustice against the stopped the famine because David offered over these people, and it says that, and we believe it's without in error we believe it's without error, that leads us to think, well, that must mean that God was satisfied with that sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And now we've got a tension because that's not the God we know. So are we able to wrestle with the inerrancy of scripture and realize that maybe the inerrancy of scripture is not what we've always thought it was. Could it be possible that the writer at the time in their context believed that was right, but progressively throughout time, we now know that wasn't right. Yeah, I think that's – we have to give ourselves space to do that. Otherwise, we will end up enforcing things upon the Scripture that maybe aren't true. Yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. That's good. It requires thinking again, doesn't it? Once again, yeah. thinking. It's, so, so what happens then? Um, David gets the bones of Saul and Jonathan and he buries the bones – in um, Saul's father's tomb. Mm-hmm. And he did everything uh, okay. And then after that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. So it seems like the matter's all settled. Now, you know, we can get things back to normal and God's like, okay, you guys, it would almost seem to me like God's, did, okay, you guys just settle your tiffs. Okay, now it's all done. Okay, everything's cool. Let's get back to what we're doing i don't know maybe that's too simplistic but it's like god was just letting them mess. maybe yeah i don't
0: know well i oh, i've never thought about it like that but that we talked about that in previous podcasts that god limits himself to work with the fallenness of humanity and still mm-hmm. tell his story so maybe you're right maybe that's what's happening here it's like it doesn't mean god is god is um, is a, uh, accepting or approving of this behavior but he's just still limiting himself and saying, I'm going to work within the frailty of human behavior. Yeah. Just like he worked with Abraham and, and Sarah despite their frailty and their misunderstanding that they thought it was okay to take Hagar and you know yeah. use her for their purposes, all that sort of stuff. God still limited himself and worked within that.
1: I suppose he has to work within our human frailty, doesn't he? Otherwise, you just send another flood and just yep. wipe us all out.
0: Yep. I think it's fundamental to our understanding of Scripture is to realize that I don't think everything we read about um, needs to be accepted as this is God's ultimate will. It's, it's yeah. like Jesus was questioned about why then by the by the Sadducees or the leaders, why did Moses permit a certificate of divorce? And he says, well, it was actually because your hearts were hard. There was a concession. Yeah. It's like God is triaging. He's still telling his story through your brokenness. Yeah, it wasn't it's- that way intentioned from the start, but God was willing to work with that in order to continue his redemptive plan through a fallen humanity. Yep.
1: It's like the, the golden thread, isn't it? it the gold just kinda yep, keeps waves going. kind of weaves through humanity. And, yeah,
0: that's right. You know. I think when we do that, I'm much more comfortable with passages like that and going, I don't think that was God. I think that was just God working with their limited understanding at the time. Yeah. And it also helps with passages like slavery, Jeff, and like, you know, having slaves in the Old Testament. That wasn't God's intention. God's working with it, and he elevates the level of slaves above the other communities around it, the other nations around about. Yeah. But for God to come along and say to the, to the Jews, no slavery, it would have been so far outside their worldview that they, they didn't have anything to work with. So yeah. God, God works gradually with us, patiently yeah. with us.
1: Look after you, so-called
0: slaves. Yeah. Yes, that's right.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay, the next little bit of this chapter is really interesting, I reckon. and We see four... Philistines, Mm. who by all accounts are huge men like Goliath. Yep. As we read through this, we see that they're all big, big guys. It even says that some of them were big and they had shafts like a weaver's rod. And there's all this language which is very similar to Goliath. Yes, it is. And they're all killed by a single man.
0: Mm hmm. Abishai,
1: isn't it? So it kind of, I know, different. Different single
0: men. Oh, different single men. Yeah, one, one, yep. yeah. Yep. It's not gotcha. like ten men against oh, no, one. I know that's Philistine. right. All, yep.
1: It seems to be one on one, unless I'm.
0: No, you're right. I think they are. You're correct. Yep.
1: Yep. But it really just harkens back. I mean, these guys are David's. I think some of some of them are David's brothers,
0: and some of them are David's men. Well, Abishai is Joab's brother, so he's David's nephew. He's one of them. Okay. Yep. Uh. <coughs> But the others are. Jonathan,
1: son of Shimmai, David's brother, yep. killed, killed. So that's one another guy.
0: nephew? Yep.
1: Oh, yep, right. So there's two yep. nephews at least. Okay, so they're all descendants and or part of David's gang anyway. Yep, they are. Um and they're all look, there's one guy there who's huge. He's got six fingers and six toes on each foot and hand, twenty-four in all. So he's this massive big man. But mm. there's this the same sort of deal that David had, wasn't there, that, you know, David with the with the with the
0: word of God? The, the word of God and the faith yep. that he had. Yep. Was able to kill Goliath.
1: I guess the the training that he had as well. Yes. These yep. guys i right. imagine yep. well, they've probably been trained as well. They're able to kill these big guys. So I don't know if there's a lesson in that or not, but I've just found it interesting. I think
0: it's interesting that I've never picked up on the fact that each of those were Those four guys were killed by, you know, they were all descendants of the giants of Gath. So they were all, you know, a part of that whole category of people that Goliath was from, the Nephilim. But isn't it interesting that, um, you know, a different one of David's mighty men went to battle against each one of them. Mm. Yes, that's, I've never thought about the fact it's an individual person each time. That's going to oh, well, Shim- that's the way it reads, isn't it? It oh, mean, does, we, it mentions that. When
1: yeah. I read that, I thought, well, maybe it means
0: no, it actually specifically says him and says, all his men or something. No, like I mean, well, we know that Shema is one of them, and he, he, um, is he one of the guys? Yeah, he's the guy who stands in the field and stays right to the end, doesn't he? Uh, when he taunted
1: Israel, Jonathan's son Shimmai, David's brother, killed him.
0: Yeah, it's not that one. I'm thinking about to do with the field of lentils. Now, that's that's a different story coming up at the end of Second Samuel 23, I think.
1: It says he killed the brother of Goliath. Yep. So, you know, who had the, the big yep. spear. Yep. Another battle took place in Gath. There was a huge man with the six fingers. Uh, he was also descended from Rapha. Yep.
0: So this is just stating that these battles were ongoing and that each time God had a man Yeah. who would would stand up for the Lord and fight. Mm. So I think maybe the lesson for us in that at first glance is you know, God has called each of us to have a battle, have a fight, and will we stand? Because there'll be things that, that there'll be enemies that we will fight that no one else will need to fight. David wasn't to fight these men. David fought Goliath, but these these giants needed another man yeah. to fight them. Yeah, It's a place for every one of us.
1: So mm. it's, it's worth being on God's side, isn't it? It is worth being on you know, God's side. Yep. Even if things look like overwhelming.
0: Yep. You know. Stay the course.
1: Oh, gee, I've seen so many videos lately about David and Goliath and people speculating that David wasn't young, that he was an old guy and that he wasn't small, that he was a big guy and all this, this sort of stuff. And Yep, yeah, I have too. Yeah, so.
0: There's some evidence that the stories are out, out of order. That's what the reason is, that the story was told out of respect, out of order. We're reading it chronologically, but the authors have put it in for a certain reason other than chronological order. So he wasn't necessarily a young man at that time. Yep, I've heard that too. Mm. Um, I wouldn't presume to be an expert one way or another. I think tradition has always had, you know, that this is the young David, but not necessarily. Yeah, I've seen some, even though I haven't studied it, I've seen people who I would respect as reputable scholars who... Presumed to say that he was. It was later on in his life, and he was an older man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there was that video of a guy using a a sling. Sling, yeah, like a modern day guy. Oh yeah.
0: Boy. Oh yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that that sling and a stone is going to bring down. Doesn't matter how giant, big the giant is. A well, a well targeted sling and stone with a sling will take down anyone. I reckon. Yeah. Like a like a bullet. Especially if you then go over and chop their head off. You're going to make. Yeah, that's right. Make sure. Yep. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. That's
1: it for chapter what are we up to 21 21
0: We're going on to David's song of praise in 22 now Okay see you soon
1: Welcome back chapter 22 Verse 1, David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. This
0: is such a good psalm. It's beautiful, isn't it? Do we want to
1: read it all? It's long. It's
0: quite long. Well, I, I think it's worth, maybe if you're going to read it, we probably don't need to comment on it a whole lot. We can just comment at the end. But I think it's worth, it's a devotional psalm that's worth reading and seeing it. I've used it in my own, say, my own life and gone, God did this for David. God will do this for me. Mm. So maybe you just read it in that context. yeah. Okay. It's also Psalm 18 Is well. It's the same Psalm. Exactly.
1: All right. Yeah. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, my savior from violent people. You save me. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. "'Smoke rose from his nostrils. "'Consuming fire came from his mouth. "'Burning coals blazed out of it. "'He parted the heavens and came down. "'Dark clouds were under his feet. "'He mounted the cherubim and flew. "'He soared on the wings of the wind. "'He made darkness his canopy around him. "'The dark rain clouds of the sky, "'out of the brightness of his presence, "'bolts of lightning blazed forth. "'The Lord thundered from heaven. "'The voice of the Most High resounded.' He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, (coughs) at the blast of breaths from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of the deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He's rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I'm not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I've been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. (coughs) You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. With your help I can advance against a troop with my God I can scale a wall as for God his way is perfect the lord the lord's word is flawless he shields all who take refuge in him for who is god besides the lord and who is the rock except our god it is god who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure he makes my feet like the feet of a deer he causes me to stand on the the heights, he trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight. And I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the peoples. You have preserved me as the head of nations." People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be my God, the rock, my saviour. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From a violent man you rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever.
0: Wow! I don't know about you, but I just read that psalm and I feel like I'm ready to go. Yeah, it's, I feel like I can run through a troop, even with my cough and croakiness. I feel like I can go. It's um, it's a faith-filled psalm, isn't it? It is.
1: Yep, it's wonderful.
0: Yeah. And reading it devotionally is a good way to go because it is a Psalm, Psalm 18 as well. And just to read it through, um, you can read it in a setting like that, but then also to meditate on certain sections of it where his justice and his vindication of the righteous, and then His empowering and emboldening of us to do what he's called us to do. It's all there in this this summary Psalm that he writes at the end of his life.
1: Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. The one of the verses I really like there is you provide a broad path for my feet so my ankles will
0: not give way. Yeah.
1: Like he's he's just uh, who whoever wrote this whether it was David or someone wrote Yeah, it, I think
0: David or David, one, yep, David sang this song to the Lord. Okay. Yep, I'm pretty sure it's it I'm pretty sure it's his own psalm. So,
1: you, you, I can just picture him just closing his eyes and just kind of looking at his life and just Trying to put it into words and go, this smooth path. You know, not even my ankles. Do yeah, work. no, I'm not even going to roll my not, ankle on it. Yeah. yeah, in the
0: midst of all the adversaries.
1: You've looked after me and, and, and now foreigners cower before yeah. me. You know, you've taken me from.
0: <coughs> taking me from a shepherd boy on the side yeah, of the hill.
1: And he was the, you know, the least of the sons. Yep. The, the youngest. Yep. Which, you know, in those days the youngest was the least. And, yep. And he's been. Elevated. Elevated yep. to, you know, just
0: and he's Incredible he, and the things. thing is he's not arrogant in this it's there's a confident assertion in the power of his God the lord lives exalted be the god the rock of my savior so there's this confident assurance in who he is in his god and that gives him a boldness but not an arrogance yeah that's right yeah i,
1: I had here verse 21 and 22 says um, the lord's dealt with me according to my righteousness according to my cleanness he's rewarded me and um for I've kept the ways of the Lord and I'm not guilty of turning from my God. And you could look at that as saying, well, God's kind of looked after him because of he because of his works, but that's not what it's about. That's not it? what David's saying. It's, uh, I think no. we spoke about this in the last yeah. podcast that yeah. you and I did, that David understands his righteousness yep. comes from the Lord.
0: David is an insight into the the full understanding of that righteousness is not his, that it comes from the Lord, absolutely. And he, he balances that with that understanding of I'm now righteous, therefore I'm expected to claim what I'm entitled to yeah. because it's cost the Lord to give me this. It's definitely Psalm 18 starts with, for the choir director, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. He sang this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies and from Saul. So that's the context of of this Psalm that he's written. So it may have been written earlier in his life and it's been repurposed in 2 Samuel at the end of his life. It yeah. may, because it says he rescued him on the day he rescued him from Saul. So I suspect he had it earlier in his life. But yes, the, the writer has decided to insert it here as a, a summary passage of David's life. And it's a superb summary passage, isn't it? Oh, because yeah, it summarizes everything we've read about in the last, well, from First Samuel 16, when he first arrives until Second Samuel 22, pretty much, you know, 40 yeah. chapters of David's life. And this is a summary of that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's a great psalm.
1: I wonder, could we write a psalm like that about our lives? I wonder. We probably could, you know. This, you, you yeah.
0: Know. You could for sure. You'd write some beautiful poetry or songs <laughs> about how God has been faithful to you through it all, Jeff. Well, I think we all could. Um, mm. I'd probably get ChatGPT to write mine for me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding.
1: Fair enough. But what no. I guess the point I'm making is d- we can look at this and think, oh, yeah, David did all these wonderful things for the Lord. And we think, oh, I've just had an ordinary life. But. You stop and think about things that God has done for you and yep. where he's, if you've been walking with the Lord for any time, yep. you see you know that he looked after you even when you weren't walking yep. with him, what he's done for you and where he's brought us to. Oh, boy. We could we,
0: turn that into a song, couldn't we? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, sure. There's an old song we used to sing, hasn't the Lord been good to us? Hasn't the Lord been good? I can't remember all the lyrics to that. You might remember. Oh, no. but, you know, that whole thing of reminding ourselves of what the Lord has yeah. done in our life. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, there's a challenge to you, folks. Yeah, think about what the Lord has done for you, and write it into poetry. Take the time by slowing down. I'm just joking when I say get ChatGPT to write it. I'm, I'm only kidding. There's there's something in, and you've known this a lot of poetry that you've been writing, especially mm. I've noticed since you know since you've retired, is that I, I would imagine that it's the time it's taking to process and think it through and turn it into poetry that's yeah. actually meditating for you. Is that is that a, that's what oh, I found? Oh, that's right.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: it's easy to write prose and write a journal, but slowing down and putting it into pro- putting it into poet- poetic form actually makes it meditative you have to think it through a lot more and think through what God has really done for me.
1: That's right yeah mm. it, it, I've always been um, really thought it was fantastic the way that uh, a, uh, someone that writes a song, a songwriter, modern day um, worship music can take a whole chapter and put it into like two or three words Mm. and we know exactly what it means. Where it's coming from, yep, that's right. And and I think that's the – and that's what David's done here. That's exactly. He
0: summarised his life, all his battles against Saul and all his misunderstandings. He summarised it here, hasn't he?
1: That's right. And he hasn't – well, I know we're reading English here, but it doesn't rhyme or there's not even probably any rhythm to it, but it's still – you can still read it as a wonderful – kind of poem, can't you? you know? Yes.
0: Well, one of the things that's worth noting about poetry in the Old Testament is Old Testament poetry is uses rhyme of thought, not necessarily – there are patterns and there are yeah. a few other things sure. like they'll use anagrams of letters and different things where you use different yep. letters. But the most common one we see in the Psalms is poetic thought. They'll have one line and then they repeat that line yes. with another uh, derivation of the same meaning. So you'll see that as you're Yep. You read through, that's the way David is written here. Mm. So, for instance, verse 5 says, the waves of death overwhelmed me. Then it says, floods of destruction swept over me. Mm. So he's saying the same thing in two different ways. Yep. You'll see that all the way through Old Testament poetry. Yeah.
1: And it just makes it fuller and it richer, richer and enriches beautiful, it beautiful, doesn't that's it? That's right, yeah. and that's
0: how they did it. The graves have wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path. Mm. So that's, that's the pattern. So once you know that in Old Testament poetry, it actually comes to life because it becomes meditative.
1: It does. And you may have noticed as I was reading it, it kind of draws you to to want to speak quicker or slower and it just it just naturally happens as you're reading through it. Does. it just, the, oh, I'm just blown away by the Psalms and the poetry oh, yeah. in the Bible the, and the way the whole Bible is put together. It just makes me... Understand that this has to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. There's no way people can write something as gorgeous as, beautiful as, as that. This.
0: Yeah. It just, just transcends the words on the page yeah. at a level that takes you. Like that song, like I said, it was like the first thing when you finished reading was like, wow, I'm there. Yeah. I'm ready to go. And that's what the Spirit has arrested those words and brought them to a life, to a lot, li- you know, alive in me. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. It's a great psalm.
1: I recommend any, or everyone to read it. Yes. Read it again and Meditate again. Meditate on it.
0: Yeah. Yep. So now we're going to move on to David's last words in 2 Samuel 23. Exactly.
1: Welcome back. Here we are in chapter 23 and, and the title in – most Bibles for chapter 23 would be David's last words, although this is not the last chapter in the Bible. Oh, sorry. in, da- in No, there's a census to in come David's in the life. chapter. We'll get to that in a minute. There's a bit more that happens. But, but it says, these are the last words of David, the inspired utterances of David, son of Jesse, the utterances of the man exalted by the Most High the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs.
0: My version says, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Yep. Sweet love Sweet psalmist, it. yeah, that's a good...
1: Mm. So, so I want to read uh, verse 2 through to 7. It says, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness... When he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise, on a cloudless morning like like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses the tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. Isn't that a beautiful passage of Scripture there? The
0: contrast between those who seek the Lord and those who don't. Yeah,
1: and it just sort of sums up all the stuff we've been saying about David Through this book of Samuel, that he knows who he is, he knows whose he is. Great, Jeff. And he knows why he does what he does.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and to him, it was never about empire. Well, most of the time, it was never about empire. I mean, when David was at his best, he was shepherding the people. Unlike we're going to go on and see all the other kings, almost without exception, that descend from him and the kings of Israel, they're about empire. David is about his kingdom. God's kingdom. He he re- he sees that his job is to shepherd the people, and uh, he does that so well.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know he talks about having this fear of God, which is so important. Yes, have that, isn't it? That, can, can you just explain that what that means—the fear of God?
0: Well, there's a lot of scholars who will, who will disagree about what the word "fear" means there, because it does it does actually mean um, like fear and trembling. So scholars will go, well, how does that work? If God is gracious, why should we fear him? Uh, Jesus will say, Jesus will go on and he'll say, you know, do not fear the one who can, um, you know, do, do not fear the one who can throw you in prison, but fear him who is able to, you know, throw you to hell, basically, is what Jesus will say. So there is a sense in which there's this fear there. But I think it's a different kind of fear to a fear that is bound by uh a, a, deep, a deep fear that oh, God's out to get me. It's more, no, there's this holy reverence and all that if, if I le- choose to live my own way, God's justice will have to come upon me. So I have to be aware of the fact that God is a just God. But it's also this fear and reverence that despite that, God is gracious and God is loving. And so there's a holy awe. How, how great and how marvelous is this God that he could yeah. punish me and will if I continue in my injustice, but He has not treated me as my sins deserve. He has been faithful, and and if I turn my heart to Him, He will forgive me, and that kind of thing. That's all wrapped up in. So I like to use the terms awe and reverence. Yeah. Not to soften the justice of God, but to not only speak about the justice of God.
1: Yeah. Okay. I like that. Yeah. It's good. Mm. Wonderful, powerful, beautiful God.
0: Yes. Amen.
1: Okay, and then, uh, the, then the rest of this chapter is basically talking about all David's mighty warriors and it, it names a whole bunch of guys. And, you know, I guess you can kind of skip over it or you can look through that and think these guys were working for my future, for for mm. the, 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 the Lord's way would the, – the Lord would have his way through these mighty men and I'm now able to, you know
0: – in inheritance of that. Of that. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. If these men hadn't fought for David and for Israel, yep. we wouldn't have what well, we have today. We wouldn't have Jesus have come. So yes, they've been right. they've been written into the story. Yeah.
1: That's yeah. right. And don't just um brush over it because no. these guys, you know. And that was a common yeah, practice
0: that you know that they would record the kings and them the the leaders of the nation and that sort of stuff. So this is as we move towards the summing up of David's life. This is important to the Writer, that gets some um, immortalized these yeah, characters
1: for sure. And imagine, imagine the Jewish people today looking back and going, oh, Alika the Herodite, he's my great great oh, great yes, great, they great would uncle." Be you know able how to proud would too? you be that? Yeah, that's that's true. I That fought for King David. My goodness,
0: that's a good point. What what I haven't thought about
1: that. Yeah, what a wonderful mm. thing, and that that might in turn help them to. To be more faithful to the Lord.
0: as Well, it's well. right. I'm an I'm an inheritance of that same spirit. Yeah. I, I will fight for the Lord. I will declare His righteousness in that's the right, earth. That's right. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's good. the way that we might think, oh, my grandmother was a, a praying grandmother or whatever. Yeah. So you know, I want
0: to I want to em- up- emulate that. Her, that's her great. legacy. Honor yeah. that legacy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's Beautiful, that's right? a good thought.
1: Yeah. All oh, right. Right here, are we going? to have we got chapter twenty four. I have, think we do. Yeah. Yep. Twenty four. Okay. We'll go there now. we are going to twenty four. Okay, here we go. Chapter 24. This is the last chapter that talks about, well, well, I no, it's not the last chapter that talks about David,
0: is no, it? No, we read about, a little bit more about him in the first couple of chapters yep. of, of 1 Kings as well.
1: The last chapter of 2 Samuel. Yep. That'll
0: do us. Yep. We're getting towards the end.
1: Okay. I want to read verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Mm. And he incited David against them saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So David does this. He takes the census. And God gets cranky with him for it. Yeah. There's a reason for that, I guess. What would you say?
0: (laughs) I reckon this is another similar situation to what we were saying in the last one about uh, previously, about the whole, you know, sacrifice of the seven descendants of Saul, um, because it, the writer is clearly wanting you to see, as it says there, that um, in the something that Israel has done has angered the Lord, so the Lord is now going to bring His justice, and He's going to do that through trying to get the king to take a census. Mm. Um, which there, he does. It which takes
1: nine months and twenty days yeah, to do it, the, it's the it's census. Yeah, it's a long census,
0: and no one was really. Joab wasn't happy about it. The Levites weren't happy about it. And I think the general consensus, there's a, This, I'm pretty sure this story is paralleled in Chronicles as well. There's a general consensus here because of what, this is probably the one shining moment where Joab actually does anything right. In verse 3, Joab replied, May the Lord your God, let because God, he's commanded Joab to go and take the census. Joab replies to the king, May the Lord your God let you live to see a hundred times as many people as there are now. But why, my Lord the king, do you want to do this? But the king insisted. And of course, if the king insists, you go and do it. Yeah. So I think the general consensus is, this is a momentary lapse on David's part, where he moves from trusting in God to trusting in his own kingdom or his own people. He wants to take a census because he wants to count the fighting men. Yeah. He wants to know what is my strength. Yep. And it might even be a little bit of that. Oh, look, I've gotten to the end of my life. What a great kingdom I've built. Still in there, that whole little, even despite the fact David's, most of the time he's right. There's still a little bit of pride in there. Mm. Oh, I want to count my numbers. I want to know how great I am. As I get to the end of my life, maybe he's reflecting back on his life and his hardships and he's thinking, well, let's just see what I've got. And that was a lack of trust in God. Yeah. He doesn't need – his
1: strength doesn't come
0: from his men. His strength, his strength comes, comes from, from the Lord. The Lord. Yeah. That's right but but in
1: saying that it's still god saying go and take a yeah, census.
0: Yes, so that's why I'm trying to think what the chronicles version is because as we talked about in a previous podcast when you read the chronicles version it's written hundreds of years later. And do you have a do you have any cross references in that bible? Um Chronicles 27:23. 27, 27:23.
1: 27, First Chronicles.
0: First Chronicles. Yep, yep. So let's go. When David took his census, he did not count the younger than twenty years old. But, uh, that's that's yeah. So that's the census. But prior to that, it lists the military leaders. Um, I'm, I'm maybe wrong here. Um, Second Chronicles two 2 Chronicles two seventeen is another cross reference, is it? Mm. Let's see. And went through the tribes. No, that was Solomon's census that he took. Okay. So it is the twenty seven one. Um, on, yeah, so it doesn't actually specifically, uh, it doesn't actually specifically pass a judgment on David's, I thought it did, but unless it's somewhere else, it passed the judgment, the Chronicles, pass a judgment on David doing this, it may only just be in this story that, uh, in the second Sam, second Samuel story where it's mentioned, but I was sure it was mentioned somewhere else, but I must be wrong.
1: But we see the Lord doing this in other places where he hardens people's hearts, doesn't Yes. For, yeah. For... I guess he's got a an end game in mind Yep, that he needs to...
0: Something's going on here because there's an act of judgment um, that it says the Lord was angry with Israel. So Israel have done something to anger the Lord. Maybe yeah. they've turned on their oath as a, as a people. So he has gone, well, I'm going to get bring justice to this. But the justice seems harsh too because ultimately this justice is going to be, um, this plague is going to, this... Um, census is going to call, cause the prophet to come and say, you got a choice. Yeah. Do you want three years of being at the enemy, enemy's hand? Three, what does it say? Three days of plague or three months of famine or something like that? Three months of fleeing your enemies. Fleeing your enemies?
1: Uh, three years of famine, three months of fleeing your enemies or three days of plague.
0: Right. And David really? says, oh, he sees the plague, he goes, I'll take that one. He says, I'd rather fall on the graciousness of God than the than my enemies, mm. so he takes he chooses the three days of plague. And well, it
1: sounds like the best option,
0: it sounds like the best option. Do you think
1: three days, how many can well, he kill in three days? But doesn't it say 27,000 or oh, well, 70,000 or
0: something? It might be something. something like that off the top of 70,000 died, Se- yeah. Well, that's um, not exactly option one, is it?
1: Well, he d- <laughs> I did guess he didn't know it was going to be 70,000. No, you might think plague for three days that won't be enough to, infect to do much, yeah,
0: anyone, but. But what actually happens in this story is that the plague is stopped. That the, the Lord David does intercede. He does what the leader should do. He gets in the gap and says, Hey, these people are sheep. They are innocent. They haven't done anything wrong. It was me. Yes. So he he maps out this intercessory model, which is a type of pattern that we see. Moses does this when he says, In the on the mountain, don't kill them, Lord, kill me. David's doing it here. And these are all foreshadows of Jesus when there's this intercessor that will stand in the gap. Yeah. That, so in that sense, he's operating as a foreshadow of Jesus when he stands in the gap. Yeah. So there is complexities in this story, just like the whole other one that will warrant bigger deeping, digging than we've got time to do today. But I think we can get out of it, this pattern of intercession and this pattern that David will ultimately go up to this threshing floor by this threshing floor and make this final sacrifice offer himself on that, threshing floor. yeah, And that threshing floor will become the temple where Solomon will build his temple yeah. on what is now the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So it's this picture, this foreshadowing of where Jesus will ultimately offer himself. Isn't
1: it amazing Yes, the way that all happens? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, God says to the angel, enough, withdraw your hand. So he it- it probably hasn't even lasted the whole three days.
0: No, it hasn't even. It hasn't. He's, he's stopped it before. It, it stopped it before completion. That's right. How many may have died. That. <coughs> that's right. And I think that tells us something too,
1: that that's, that's the way God works. Yep. And David says, yeah, like you said, he says, I've done wrong. Let your hand fall on me. And then he builds that altar on that day. It says he goes up and, you know, the he tries to uh, buy that altar from
0: Aruna the Jebusite. So Aruna would have been, um, the term Aruna scholars say is not a name, it's actually a title. So the scholars actually think Aruna would have probably been the previous king of Jerusalem. Jebus, Jebus the Jebusite, okay. is the city that Jerusalem, David conquered Jebus and made it his capital. So even then, he didn't kill the yep. previous king. He was still living in the place. Mm-hmm. That's what the scholars say. So he owned this threshing floor, and David bought it off him. So, when we
1: when we hear about threshing floors, I guess the idea was this is a good place to build an altar because it's a nice, it's flat. flat. You know, it's probably up a bit high or whatever, yep. and it's nice and flat like a concrete slab or something. Pretty but, much, yep. That's how you, you have know, to think of it, yep. And uh, I can easily build an altar on that, and like exactly. You say, which turns into the temple. The temple, yep. Yeah, the sacrifice, boy, that. <sighs> We've talked about the temple and you know what what that all means, haven't we? And how that kind of applies to Jesus and uh, behold the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And this yeah. just this golden thread just weaves yep. all the. And way. This is
0: one of those threads where David is fulfilling that messianic thread. Yeah, he's offering, he's he's laying down his sacrifice. He says, "I will not offer to the Lord something which sacrifice cost me nothing." Yeah,
1: because Aruna so offers, offers to give, to it, to give to him, it to him, to him. Yeah. and the and the. Oxen and the carts to chop up and all that. He goes, No, 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 I'm
0: not going to do that. I'm guilty here. I'm going to pay the price, which is that whole stand in the gap thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he does. He stands in the gap and the plague is stopped. Yeah. So despite the complexities and the questions that are left unanswered about this, there is still a surface level meaning of this this God is gracious and he will not punish us as our sins deserve. Yes. That's right. Whatever the sins were. They were underpunished, not over yeah. That's yeah. good stuff. Yeah.
1: All right. That takes us brings us to the end of the, our Old Testament
0: All right, we're going to head to the week. New Testament now. Yep.
1: Let's go. Philemon coming up. Okay, we're going to dive into the New Testament for this section of our podcast. We're going to be looking at the book of Philemon or Philemon.
0: (laughs) Philemon, Philemon, Philemon. We're going to to say Philemon. I'm going to go Philemon.
1: Philemon's easy easy to say. Yep. Okay. I might just let you explain this one, Pastor Owen, rather than read it out. It's It's one chapter.
0: Yeah. All right, let's let's go into a little bit a little bit of background off the top of my head of what I know of Philemon. So uh, Philemon is a friend of Paul's who most likely lives in um, in Colossae, I think it is. And uh, I'm going off what NT Wright says. Paul, this is one of the prison letters that was written probably at the same time as Colossians and went 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 to, to Colossae with the, the letter of Colossians. So assuming what NT Wright says, which I tend to think is a pretty good argument is that Paul wrote this when he was in prison in Ephesus, not so much Rome, although traditionally a lot of people say Rome. But this this is one of the arguments why he wrote this in in Ephesus, because it's much closer. So Onesimus, well, one Simus who is in this story, Onesimus was a slave or a, yeah, a slave of Philemon's who for whatever reason had run away. Mm. And it appear he wasn't a believer at the time he'd run away. He must have spent some time with Saul, And with Paul, maybe, I don't think, I don't think Paul had ever been to Colossae at this point. So probably Philemon's well-to-do. He's probably been with Paul in Ephesus. He's met him there. Um, He'd had his slave with him and then he'd gone back home and the slave had fallen out of character with something had happened. And so he ran away from home and he ran to Paul. Where do I go? Only person I know is Paul. Mm -hmm. He runs to Paul. While he's with Paul, he becomes a believer. Paul disciples him and he becomes a believer and follower of Christ. Then Paul says, "Well, I can't keep him here because you've got to own up to the fact that you've done the wrong thing. So I'm going to send you home. You need—I expect you to go back home to your master." But Paul writes this letter to accompany the Philemon as he goes home, so that when he goes home, Paul is saying, "Look, you know, I want you to accept him back as a brother." Mm. So that's the context of the whole. It's only one chapter. It's a very short letter. Yep. A little bit of sarcasm in there. Paul said, "Paul will say things like." You know, I'm not gonna expect this of you. Yep. But just remember that uh, you know, you owe me your life. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he's he's kind of saying, sorry, not sorry, saying that sort of thing. So that's the context of it. But it it does have a greater meaning because it it shows us once again, Paul fills the position of Christ in this. He is standing in the gap. He'll say things like, If he owes you anything, if Philemon owes you anything, if, if Onesimus owes you anything, charge it to my account. So he's yeah. He's the intercessor. He's the mediator. He's Christ in this story. It's a beautiful little, simple story that shows the heart of God that can reconcile people one to another. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah.
1: When 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 I've read it in the past, I thought, boy, that's a that's a way that I should live. You know, just accepting people back that have wronged me and yes. just and treat them like a brother and that happens doesn't it when we become a part of the christian family become part of god's family we people that may have once annoyed us or you know done us wrong or whatever yep. when we come into the the family we we we're, we're changed and we we become brothers mm. rather than mm. adversaries or you know i don't yeah, you know what I I'm do. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, and it's not that we need to necessarily just be blanket trusting of everybody either. I no, mean, if someone no. has um, abused you or, or, or betrayed your trust, it's not like just let them straight back in. It's more that heart that's saying I want to believe the best. Yeah, you know I'm, I might need you've got to prove trust is trust is earned. Of course, yes, but that doesn't mean that love needs to be earned. Yeah, love is something we we love people unconditionally. Trust is something that is conditional. Yeah. In this case, Paul is saying, take him back. I'm I'm actually um, approving him to you. Yes. He's a changed man. Whatever's gone before, I'm not saying it wasn't wrong. I'm just saying he's a changed man. He may never be able to repay you what he did to you. Charge that to me, but take him back.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of the story of the Good Samaritan.
0: It's like the story of the Good Samaritan.
1: Look after him. I'll I'll pay all whatever's due. That's right, Jeff. Just look after him for me. Yep. Um, and would you say that uh, – so this, this talks about uh, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also his sister, uh, and to the church that meets in your home. So he, they're asking the whole church to, to take him back. Yes. Is it fair to say that most of Paul's writings were to the church?
0: Most of Paul's writings were to the church, yes, with the exception of where we're we going to go in a moment, Titus. So, with the exception of Timothy and Titus, and yeah, and this one's written to the church too, even though it's called Philemon. Um, Timothy and Titus specifically written to them personally.
1: To them, yeah, but they were members of the church. Well, right?
0: they were the leaders. He was writing yeah. to them as as the pastors of those churches. Yeah. They were, but right. in those cases, they were. I think Timothy was in Ephesus and Titus was in Crete, and they were there as he was writing to them, past uh, a pastorally to say, this is how I want you to lead that church. Yeah. With those exceptions, they were written to the church and to be read to the church. Yeah, yes, yeah. very much so.
1: so. So Paul's ministry was twofold, wasn't it? It was evangelical to the... Yep.
0: Uh, to the lost, to, the, to the those lost, that didn't know the called? Lord. The, um, Gentiles. Gentiles. Yep, yep. It's been a long day. We, we're actually Gentiles. backing up. <laughs> this is our second podcast today.
1: <laughs> to the Gentiles, but he also was... I guess as he as he uh, became older, he may have focused more on keeping the church yeah. sort of running. Well, daily. like the way
0: you say it, it's twofold. He was doing both. Yeah, yeah.
1: he could he couldn't evangelize much because he was in jail.
0: Yes, that's so right. So He spent more time. So he's reinforcing to, the church and yeah. dealing with problems in the church and addressing things. Yes, all the yeah. way through.
1: I can't evangelize and do that, so you guys have got to
0: do no. it. No, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my wisdom as to how to do that well. Mm. And so he is they call pastoral epistles um because they're pastoral letters they're they're letters that he's writing pastorally to the church yeah yeah
1: um I don't think there's much more to say about this no it's letter. just a it's simple just little a...
0: story um a good commentary will just help you uh to to understand it but the the commentary I gave is probably enough to yeah. just read it devotionally so. yeah yep and as always, I mean we're oversimplifying it you'll find a lot more in that, but that's enough to get people yep. reading it and knowing what it is.
1: It's one, you know, it's a, a good little one that you can say, oh, man, I read a whole book of the I Bible. I read a
0: whole book of the Bible today. <laughs> yeah. And I did it in 25 <laughs> verses. How about that? <laughs> yeah, Not even a long chapter. Incredible. It's, great it's probably the, the shortest little letter in the Bible. Yeah. I'd say All it right. would be. Oh, Jude might be slightly shorter, but that's the only other one, right, I think. Yeah. All right. So we're going to go over to um, Titus. Titus. We're going backwards. Not over. Backwards. All right, Titus. We're going to do one, two, and three, aren't we? We are, yeah. Okay.
1: Okie here we go. We're jumping into the book of Titus, and we're starting in chapter 1, and I want to read verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. I love that.
0: Yep, it's an acknowledgement of who he was, what he was about.
1: It really helps us, doesn't it? it? It, it just... First and foremost, Paul. you know, Paul doesn't go, Paul, um, retired tent maker or whatever he used to do for a living. I think he made tents, didn't he? Yeah, he did,
0: yep. Um, or Paul the ex-Pharisee, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yep.
1: He, he His identity is found in serving Christ. Yep. It's just wonderful, isn't it? I, I wonder should we, you know, when we introduce ourselves to people, hmm. Do we say, "Oh, what do you do for a living?" You know, "Oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a builder, or I'm a nurse, or whatever." Should we say, when people say, "Well, who are you?" Oh, I'm, you know, a servant of the Lord, <laughs> and I'm a nurse. And I'm a, it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it?
0: Well, I would, I guess, it would depend upon what, what sort of response you're going to get. Because sometimes that putting yeah. that barrier may create an unnecessary barrier early yes. on in the conversation. Yeah. Paul's writing to. To other Christians. Other Christians yeah. here. So um I'm not saying that wouldn't work. I mean, it's easy for us as pastors. We get an easy because they say people say, What do you do? I say, I'm a minister of religion. Straight away, like it or lump it. Yeah, they either turn they away. They either or turn away, <laughs> away or they don't. But you know, but we don't but that also I find that's also an out an inlet that I have that a lot of people who aren't in yes, professional employment as sure. a minister wouldn't have that advantage. And so yes, I, that helps me. I'm talking to my hairdresser, they know I'm a pastor and so on, that kind of thing. Um, But I, yeah, I wouldn't advocate for necessarily jumping in there, but some people would find that they could bring that into the conversation. I definitely think we should be better at bringing in, you know, if you're in a workplace and no one knows you're a Christian and you've been there for, you know, more than three or four months, then probably you're not shining your light enough. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Even, you know, I know what I used to do when I worked in the building game. It took me a while, but once I got brave enough, I suppose – People would say, hey, what did you get up to on the weekend? Oh, well, I went to church. There's a good simple you know, start. Yep. And um, nobody threw eggs at me or anything nope. like that. You know, people respect
0: you, That's so. actually a really good simple way to do it. Yeah. You know, just what do you do on the weekend? Oh, nothing much. Yeah. Well, that's a simple way to go. I went to church. Yeah. Definitely. That At least that opens the door to conversation. They might not yeah. do anything with it, but they store that away.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. You've
0: begun a conversation with, with your workmate or your colleague or your neighbor or whoever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like I said
1: before, Paul makes no bones about it. He's quite clear who he is, who's, who's he is.
0: And what he's about. And what he's about. Yep, absolutely. Always,
1: all the time. And, and, and it's helpful for us to have his name up there first because we know he wrote this letter. Yep. So that's handy. Okay. Verse 5 through to 9. Um. The reason I this is Paul speaking to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Pastor Rowan, does this passage apply to us today?
0: I think we should be digging into it Mm -hmm. and realizing that there are principles for leadership that are in here. I don't think it needs to be taken as um, an absolute, uh, you know, people like complementarians will say, well, an elder has to be a faithful one wife, so therefore it has to be a man or et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think that's reading too much into the text and we won't go into all the details around egalitarianism uh, at the moment. But I, do, but I do think there are principles in this scripture that we, especially you you and I as leaders in the church, we should aspire to want to live by these. I have seen this. I've talked about this on the podcast, on my other podcast, the Ministry Matters podcast with Jill. We've, we've seen people, people who have a call of God in their life, dismiss this because their children aren't serving the Lord. Yeah. You know, one of the children has decided to, to, to take time out. They go, oh, I can't do that because I don't, you know, my children uh, must be believers. Yeah. I mean, that the problem there is that, it violates the human free will that every child has to make their own decision. Yeah. So I think it's their the principles without them becoming hard and fast rules. What are the principles? Well, I, I should be training my children in the, the ways of the Lord. Um, I need to be able to have my own household in check. If I'm if I'm not managing my own household, if I haven't got some order in my world, how am I possibly going to be able to... Um, order a church and yeah. bring structure there. So I would say, does it apply? Yes, the principles apply, but not all of them black and white. Look look deeper than that, which yeah. is what I would say in the text, in the Bible in general, look deeper. What's the message behind what you're reading quite often? Yeah. I think there's a, there's a, uh, a juxtaposed position here between
1: stuff that you shouldn't have and stuff you should have, yep. and it's it's kind of just making a point that you know these are the things you should strive not to have, and these are the things you should. That's strive a good way to, to do it.
0: Yep. Yeah. And what are those? It's really about character.
1: I don't see how anybody could be an older if they had to do if you it, had to do it perfectly stuff.
0: No, that's right. Yeah. You know? So I think it's like a standard. It's like have good character is what Paul's saying. If people are look at you, what do they see? Do they see someone who's of integrous character? Or do they see someone who is using people and abusing people and their character is flawed? I think that's how we should view this. Mm. Leaders should strive to have character. Karen youhoff says, work twice as hard on your character as your competency. Yeah. And yep. I think that's the well, point. Well,
1: yeah, that's good. Yeah. You know, can you imagine everyone who's a leader of a church and one of their kids one day goes, goes out and gets on the drink and goes a bit wild? Well, that's it, I'm out. That's it, I'm out. And I've yep.
0: seen that. And I, I've had to say to people... I don't think that's what we're talking about here. You, 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 your child, you've done your best. Always, parents beat up on themselves, yeah, and right. and those of you who aren't even, you know, pastors, you, you'll listen to this and you'll think, well, what hope is there for me? Mm. You know, many one of the hardest things I find is that many parents struggle. Adult parents struggle with their adult children or whatever that have, or their teenage children that aren't maybe making the choices they'd like them to make, and they feel like I'm a bad parent. No, there's got to be room for human free will here. Yeah. Um,
1: and you know this talks about your children should believe. So in those days, you after you turn thirteen, you're not a child anymore. So yep. maybe it's only talking about
0: younger the, children. Younger, yeah. People.
1: Good call. Yeah, that's I mean? true. We and can't be responsible for our adult children. For no,
0: no. It. And and um, we talked about this in in the podcast with Jeannie pre- recently, a couple a month or so ago. Is that um, there's. There's also a sense in which Paul, in the New Testament, there's a household salvation concept too. Yes, yeah. So we need to bring that into it. We, we in the Western evangelical, we, we do emphasize personal salvation and we, and we should, that's definitely there, but we shouldn't dismiss the whole concept of like we read Philemon in the last chapter, Philemon's household was a Christian household. Mm. So, uh, yeah, Philemon's household. Does that mean Onesimus who was in that house was necessarily a Christian himself? Not necessary. Maybe that's why he flew away. Why yeah. he ran away? Something was going on there. Yeah. Maybe there was some tension there. But the household was regarded as a Christian household. Christ was head
1: of the house. Christ
0: was head of that household. Yep. Yes. And I think there that has that's probably more what's overarching here, rather than seeing it as you're in or you're out. What is your character? What is your passion for your house? Do you want your house to be like Joshua? As for my, me and my house, we want to be a place that serves the Lord.
1: Yeah. Okay, so he he goes on then to uh, says rebuking those who fail to do good. Uh, in verse ten, says, "For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group."
0: He's back on the circumcision group, yeah. even in it. great they're around. Yeah. Yep.
1: Because you know, and and this is, let's put aside the circumcision group, but. For all of us today, full of meaningless talk and deception, mm. we can just uh, meaningless talk. There's so much meaningless talk, isn't it? Yeah. We can we can even uh, have a lot of meaningless talk about the Bible that that we can fool ourselves that we're we're doing good or whatever. But it's just nonsense. Some of if it's of it, just
0: it? if it's just talk. And it's not bringing change, I'd say it's meaningless. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would say most of what we talk about in this podcast hopefully is not meaningless, but it's only going to not be me- If it's just information we're giving you and you're not, it's not actually bringing transformation to yeah. the way we live, then it's meaningless. But if we can look at it and discuss it and work out what's philosophy and what's theology, but in the end we go, what do we do with this? That's right. How yeah. does it make us more like Christ? How does it inspire us to live a Christlike life? Yeah. Then it's not meaningless. That's that's, right. the, that's the measurement stick. I think that we should live by. Yep, yeah, I agree. with and that. And what was happening here was there was a whole lot of just sitting around chatting. And I've seen this over the years. This, this is, you know, you talk about you, you get, you, your men's group. You, you've been really good at getting those guys talking and all that kind of stuff, and that's wonderful. Um, and the, but I've seen this over the year with over the years, especially with two or three men's groups that I've been involved in over many years, or or been aware of. I've seen them where they can get around and get into these high-level, high-sounding philosophies, but they're not—they're uh, not looking after. They're not with the kids, you know. They're not with. I even had times I've had ones where we've been doing structured Bible studies. They get through the structured Bible study, then they go, "Let's talk about all this stuff," and they hang around till midnight. And meanwhile, their wife's home with the kids, trying to sort everything out, and they yeah, think sure. they're being spiritual. Yeah. So I think um, I think which should it should bring around christ likeness and that living for others. Otherwise, it's just empty. High, Paul, Paul say high-sounding philosophies is what he will call yeah. it. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, well, that's one of the great things about our men's group. We've got guys who are pretty switched on theologically yep, and other guys that are just love the church and they just want to love on people. That's right. And, and so we get this
0: great… You, you get know, a good banter going on between the two. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And in the end, and as a leader, you know this, in the end with those sorts of things, by all means discuss away, but let's go, okay, how does this apply to our life? Yeah. You know, what is what is tonight's conversation yeah. going to bring about? What positive changes is it going to bring about in our life? What what is it calling? What is the scripture demanding of us as yeah. a result of this? And that's how we move from being what he called useless talk yeah. to something that's meaningful. Yep, I yep. love it.
1: That's great. Good stuff. Now I've got here verse thirteen. Let's have a look at thirteen. Uh, This saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith. Okay, so...
0: The saying is true is a a cretin phrase above.
1: Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons.
0: Yeah, and I think that from memory is a quote from Epimenides of Nossos. It's actually a Greek philosopher. Oh, yeah, okay. So Paul knew his Greek philosophy as well. He quotes Greek philosophy, not Jewish philosophy, Greek philosophy.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, I like that that he says... um, So. So when there are people that are carrying on like this, rebuke them sharply. Yes. So that they will be sound in the faith. Yeah. So there are times, aren't there, where you yes. have to stand up and go, hey, hey, hang yep. on, mate, where would yep. you get that idea from? Yep. You know, I know I've I've had to do that many times. Mm. I think, hang on, hang on, just let's open our Bibles. Let's talk about this. And yep. I've, I've learned that from wonderful people who are mm. so much more understanding of the Bible, yep. have gently coaxed me to go, hang on, Yes. where did you get that idea from? Yeah.
0: Let's have I don't think voice, this is like right? a, a – I mean it says rep- reprimand them sternly. I don't think this is like, you stupid idiot, no, don't you – that's no. not what it's, – it's calling them on – hey, do you really think that's the case? Why? Yeah. Often the way to do this is to ask the person, tell me why you think that. Yes. Yeah. Because very quickly they will become aware of the shallowness of their beliefs. And that's, I think, good shepherding. It requires us to, uh, yeah, to to sometimes straighten people out, yeah, for their own good, for sure, yeah.
1: That question, where, where why do you think that? Why do you think that, that? makes a massive? Yeah. you can you can sometimes see people just go, oh, actually, and they kind of look up in the air and go, actually, why do I
0: think that? Yes, exactly. Yeah. or they might come out. And I've seen this plenty of times where they'll come out with a proof text, yeah, one verse that. Yep. So you, as a pastor, what I'll do is I'll go again. I'll say that what is the context that that scripture was written? Yep. In? How does that scripture fit with the nature of what you know of God? So you just keep asking questions all the time. Yep. The dig, the more you do that, the more people will start to hopefully, unless they're really stuck in their ways, start to see the error of their ways. Yeah, that's right. It says in in fact. Um,
1: in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good.
0: At this point, Titus is going, why am I left with this crowd? Because there's obviously some pretty hard-nosed, stubborn yep. people among this church, isn't yep. there? That's what he's referring to.
1: Paul's encouraging Though like come on, just you put your hand up.
0: Yep. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. You can do this. this, you can moment. lead you can lead this. Yep. Yep. You can lead these this crew. I think so. Yep. Yep, definitely.
1: Okay, that's it. All right. And we'll go to chapter two. Okay, Titus chapter two. For anybody who is a leader in a church, in a connect group or a Bible study or a pastor, listen to this. This is important. Not that the rest isn't, but this
0: is This is good, good teaching for those in leadership. Yes, it is.
1: it is. I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 10 to start with. You... Look, after he's been talking about these people that are talking nonsense, he says, "'You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. "'Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, "'and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. "'Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, "'not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, "'but to teach what is good. "'Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children.' to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home and be kind and be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech, cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be shamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. That's just lovely, I think. Lovely. I think it's lovely.
0: Why is it lovely, Jeff?
1: Because I think it's just painting a picture of the way the Lord would have us live. And I know you could pick out little bits of that and say this is discriminatory against this person. Or women or or slaves or whatever. Yep. Whatever. But I think if you look at it as a whole – it's just saying let's all live together in harmony and peace, and love each other and look after each other. Don't don't steal. Don't do anything nasty to each yep. other. And
0: put others before yourself. Exactly. Yep. Yeah.
1: And you know it's just a a wonderful picture of how a, ch- uh, a family should be and how a church should be. I think.
0: Yep. And it starts with Paul telling Titus as the pastor as the leader, this is what I want you to teach people. Yeah. I want you to teach people to live a life that reflects wholesome teaching. Yeah, What's that wholesome teaching look like? It looks like preferring others over yourself in whatever context. You know, Paul's not pro-slaves. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that he probably wasn't. Um, he certainly yeah. was ahead of his time, but slavery was a very common concept there. Um, but Paul is saying, even in that context, don't fight for your freedom all the time. Serve and go the extra mile and do all that stuff Jesus said. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in this, in the, he's not necessarily advocating for... You know, he uses the word subject, be subject for both the women and the slaves. So those who say, oh, the woman has to be subject to the man, they need to wrestle with, well, what do you think about slaves? Yeah. You can't believe in women being subject to men unless you believe in slavery. So you need to go, this is contextual. But in both those contexts, Paul is saying, if you will not fight for your rights, if you will prefer others, you will love others, then that's that. You call it lovely. It's a it's a lovely picture of what heaven on earth should look like in Christ's body. Yeah, that's right. Very different to what was going on in chapter one, where it was obviously pretty messed up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's it, it, like we said, you can take bits and pieces out of it, but, you know, it talks about the older, older yes. men to be temperate and self-controlled. Don't be cranky old yeah, man. be a and, cranky old man. You know, Paul's obviously looked at uh, all these people and gone, you don't have to be a cranky man. You don't have to be a, you know, a... I don't know a naughty child yep. you don't have to
0: you don't have to be a gossipy it. old woman that's running around from house yeah. to house spreading gossip you can you can mentor young mums you can do those sorts of things yeah exactly right. all yeah. of that and and any, and if
1: you hear anybody taking this stuff out of context and trying to use it to to put down women or put down children or whatever just walk away from
0: them yeah man. yeah
1: forget it it's not
0: it's well not here's problem. what I'd say if you're not going to it's a bit like he said in chapter one, you, first of all, you've got to ascertain whether or not they are, what did he call them at the end of chapter one? He said, he says, they everything uh, everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving. So what you're looking for is don't enter into conversation with people who've just made up their mind. Yeah, Paul, Jesus would say, don't throw your pearls before swine. Yeah, You'll know that there's some people just picking a fight. It's not worth it. But if there is opportunity to bring change, like we said in the last chapter, that's what Paul would be advocating for. Just because they might be cranky cranky old men, some of those men might just never going to change. They're just adamant they're right. But look for the ones who are. Look for the ones you can disciple who, even though you're younger than them, look for the ones who you can, maybe you can coach them into being a better and more productive Christian in God's family. Yeah. Yeah. It's good, eh? Yeah, it's good, these letters.
1: Yep. Okay. I want to read now 11 to 15. Mm -hmm. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not, lot. Do not let anyone despise you. Mm. I like that too. Eh? He goes on to encourage Titus that I want you to teach this stuff. It might seem like the people aren't going to get it, but they can.
0: They can. There's, some of them can, can get, get it. Get yes, it that's because right. Because
1: Jesus offers us the, the what's necessary to say no to ungodliness.
0: Yep. The power to say no to sin yep. is found in Christ. Exactly. Because he has yep. defeated the power of sin.
1: Exactly. And that's what we want people to get, isn't yes. it? We want people to understand that the, the power they have with Christ living inside yeah. them.
0: You don't have to be selfish. No. You don't have to think about yourself. You don't have to give in to, what does it say, worldly, godless living and sinful pleasures. Just giving into the things of this world as though they're going to satisfy you. You don't have to give in to that stuff. No. You don't have to live that way. You're a new creation. You're yep, a, you can do it. You can. So Paul, do it. so Titus, if he's reading this, the way I'm reading this, he should be inspired by this. Yeah, it's not going to be easy. Pastoring's not easy. Leading people's not easy. Mm. You don't have to be obnoxious about it, but but plead with people, teach people, call people to a higher way of life. And maybe not everyone will will do it. Don't vent on those who don't, but look for those who will. Yep. Yeah. That's it. Great, Jeff.
1: So that's a nice little passage there for any leaders in the church, I reckon. For sure. Beautiful. We'll go on to chapter three after this. (music) Titus chapter three, verse one. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. There's some good.
0: Simple Christian lifestyle right yep. there. Remind them of this.
1: Yep. Yep. But when, if you do reach that point, chap, uh, verse 3 says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. You know, he goes on to say, you know, that we were, there was a time where I wouldn't have thought, you know, Rowan would have been able to be a, a Christian, but look at him now. Yeah, that's right. That's Christ the kind has of thing. Look what
0: Christ it. has done. Yep. Yep. That's right. And, and remember, should, that's what we were too.
1: Yeah, we should all reflect back and, no, don't go getting a, a big head that yep. I'm this great, super-Christian or something, or yep. this great apostle that Paul is. You know, he understands that at one time.
0: you know, Paul he, knew who he was. He called yeah. himself the worst of all sinners, he exactly. said. Yep. Yeah, it's a little bit like David getting that revelation of who he is, but not becoming arrogant in it, remembering that there but for the grace of God go I. Yep.
1: Um, so in verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. Isn't that beautiful, the kindness and love?
0: It's great, isn't
1: it? it? Nearly makes me cry when I yeah. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That's just beautiful. Mm. And he go he goes on to say to say this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. So he's backing that up, saying this is trustworthy. What a, you know, if we're if we're trying to evangelize to our friends, maybe it's a good idea for all of us to to memorize these four verses and have them in our head so that we can talk to people like that. Yeah, because that just that just. Breaks me when I read that.
0: Yeah, that's right. Because it shows that heart attitude isn't one of arrogance or self righteousness or looking down on others, is it? It's yeah, it's just lovely recognition of what did you say it was kind, what did, kindness and yeah, did yeah kindness and love, love and kindness. Yeah, and what a great way to represent Jesus to the world if we can truly do that way. Remind us that reminding us ourselves that it was by grace. Mm not because of our works, that we have been saved. Yeah, totally. It's a beautiful, uh, that reminder of that is powerful. Yep. He's really setting up a standard. One thing as you're reading it that stood out to me here was, say for anybody who's a, a, an up-and-coming, developing teacher or leader in the church, was that Paul's not really giving Titus an option here, but the assumption is that Titus is ready to receive direction. Paul is telling him how to pastor. Mm-hmm. Paul is saying, "This is what I want you to pass. This is what I want you to pass to people. I want you to teach them these values." And so, rather than thinking Titus could have gone, "Well, I know best. I'm the pastor of this church in Crete. It's my job." He was still willing to submit himself as an under shepherd under Paul, who will ultimately be under Christ, and learn from Paul. Yep. And so, all of us, as we're developing leaders, who have we got in our world who can speak to us the way Paul is speaking to Titus here? Yep. If we haven't got people in our world really nearby who are engaged in our life, who have the the right to speak, then I reckon we're on shaky ground. At the very least, we are going to limit our ability to lead because we're not learning. We're not a lifelong learner. For sure. So I think there's there's something to be every leader, whether you're leading a connect group or a team or you're in church leadership, wherever you are, who have you got in your world? Yep. You need someone.
1: And, yeah, certainly in, in our C3 movement, you know, we have oversights. Yep. And we trust that you know they've been appointed by the Lord, and that they know what's best. And and you know, Pastor Phil will send out a message to the movement yep. every year with a, this is the direction. This is the that,
0: direction we're going. That I feel we should go. It's like a Titus letter, isn't it? It Saying, is. This, this is what God it, yeah. is calling us to do.
1: And then our you know Australian oversight will yep. will have his sort yep. of input into That's it right. as well, and yep. and that that shapes the way that we then. Yes, do it things. does. And then you you know you. It comes down to you, and then you pass it on and to the leadership scenes, yeah. here, and then we
0: well, we're talking about this a lot in our Camden location at the moment around you know Pastor Lars and Megan's vision that churches will be life giving churches. Yeah, so we're yeah. having a lot of conversation around what does it mean to be life giving, yeah. bringing that into all our conversations, and I think that's the vision we've received. So we want to pass it on. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's that's what Paul would be urging Titus to do here. Yep.
1: Yeah, it's great. Hmm. Verse nine. Avoid foolish uh controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels again. about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Yep. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and they are self-condemned. Speaks for itself, I suppose. Yes, does it does. It? There's
0: not much room for division no. in Paul's mind. Our unity is central. The church being in unity is deeply in Paul's heart. And he's not saying kick them out the first time, but he's saying, you know, people are just constantly stirring up division. They don't belong in the family of God. There's no place for them until they're willing to change. Yep, yep, that's what he's saying. And so that seems harsh, but when we think about it as a shepherd, I think yes. But if I allow that to continue, I'm actually not protecting the other sheep. Yep. So that's exactly. why I need to to need to take a stand. I'm not not going to come any angry or bitter. I'm just going to say, look, you you're causing division here. This isn't healthy. I have a responsibility to shepherd the rest of the flock. I need you to come into line. Count on one hand the number of times I've had to do that. Yeah. But it doesn't. No, no leader wants confrontation. If you like confrontation, you're probably a narcissist. But I know my tendency is to let that go because I don't want to cause offence. But I don't know how much damage I'm causing to the rest of the flock by letting it go. Yeah. Yeah. That's right.
1: Yeah. And and so I would say, you know, if anybody listening to this. And I've said this to you know all the the fellows that I hang out with and whatever. If you ever hear me carrying on like that or saying things that don't seem right, pull me up. Good on you. Straight Jeff. away, yeah. talk to me about it,
0: and be permission you know, giving. Yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah. great. If we can all, as leaders, give our leaders permission to call us in, to call us to account, because most leaders don't want to. Pastor Phil says he doesn't want to cause confrontation, but if we give permission for it to all those who have authority over us it makes it a whole lot easier for them to yep. call us on our behavior doesn't it
1: it does and i know you've done that and you know yeah we talk about all sorts of things mm, don't we totally and you know make sure we're all on the on the yep. right page and totally doing things right uh, paul goes on to just make some final remarks there just um, talking to talking about some of his mates say good day to a few you yeah i'm planning to send someone yep and, yep um Grace be with you all.
0: Love it. Starts with that. Finishes with that. Yep. Grace and peace. He often says, "Grace and peace."
1: Greet those who love us in the faith. Good stuff.
0: Mm. I think that's when he says that. I think it's more than just, oh, "Hope you're having a good day." I think there's there's genuine, yeah. heartfelt, sure, um, praying grace over you. May God's grace yeah. be with you all. Yep. Yeah, that's for true. sure. So that's Titus done.
1: Yep. Beautiful. We're going to go to one Romans. More. Romans
0: fifteen, hey? fifteen. Yep. Well, that's the greeting chapter. It's a beauty. I love it. Yeah. Okay. See you soon.
1: Okay. We're going to jump into the book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans. What a wonderful book Romans is. Oh, yes could spend a lifetime yep. studying Romans, couldn't we?
0: We're going to the second last chapter.
1: Yeah, so I just want to read the first little part, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to, where well, we are starting to see Paul in a more mature light, I think. Paul now, I think from what I can gather, he's 80 or 90 years old. Yeah, he'd
0: be getting on in life, I'd it say. It seem,
1: seems like that. Um, and, and he's not the aggressive young man that he once was, you know.
0: Be more seasoned.
1: Yeah, bear with each other's failings and and whatever. And you know, when when he was young, he was much more gung ho, wasn't he? And like, you got to do it this way, and you got to do it. way. It does that seem way. that way, doesn't it? Um, I'm sure his heart was always in the right place, and that, that's. I that's guess all it's all part of
0: we all grow. Generally, how
1: we all human grow. human behaviour. Yeah. I look
0: back on things I believed wholeheartedly that I don't believe, or things I thought were right way to behave that aren't anymore. That's yeah, it's human behaviour. It is. Yeah. I
1: certainly feel very different to to what I did when I was younger and and I think we see Paul here becoming much more like Jesus as he as he goes on mm. to, to just mm. be this wonderful lovely person who just is kind and like we spoke about in the last chapter kind and nurturing and just loving people and, and this
0: you know, is something that um my wife Jill's always picked up in, in Paul at even from many years ago, she used to see Paul through this light. She'd see the kindness and the grace of Paul, which I didn't always see because I always saw him as a bit brash and a bit around the edges. But, you know, he had this side or certainly developed this side of deep fatherly love Mm. for people, didn't he?
1: He did. Well, he spent – by this time he spent like 50 or 60 years Mm. with Jesus, Mm -hmm. with not actually – Jesus alive, no, but, but just as a walking Christian, with Jesus yep. and, and learning about Jesus. And he's become, say, gentle and caring and full of wisdom and advice. And, you know, he's just all because of Jesus. He, you know, he, he'd probably just be a, a cranky old Pharisee if he
0: for sure found
1: Jesus. Totally. You know, yep. He'd be ruling with an iron fist and saying, hey, don't you eat that? grain of wheat on a Sunday and all that sort of stuff. Exactly what he'd be like. But he's so much more tempered now yep.
0: and just… prepared to overlook things. Yeah. Yep, for sure.
1: Okay, verse 15. It's jumping a little bit. Is there Split. anything in there that you want to sort of talk about?
0: No, I think… no that? Let's, let's skip ahead to 15. Yep, let's skip ahead to where he starts to, to bring greetings and so on. He's ministering to the Gentiles. So verse
1: 15, he says… I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So there's this boldness in Paul, isn't there?
0: Yeah, confidence says? to preach, yep.
1: Yeah, confidence and a boldness to yep. sort of um, – because of his priestly duty.
0: Once again, knowing whose he was and who he was, yeah. exactly. Mm. He knows that he's an apostle to the Gentiles, so he says, I'm writing to you boldly because I know you've got it in you and I have a call, I'm calling this out of you.
1: Yep, and though, even though he had become this gentle older mm. man, he still speaks boldly mm. with mm. the authority
0: that, yeah. that he has. Well, a bit of history in Romans is that um, most scholars – There's a few different views, but I think the prevailing view is that Paul is writing to the Roman church before he's been there, um, Mm -hmm. before he's been to the Roman church, but at a time when, uh, post there's a period of time where Caesar had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. So originally it was a Jewish Gentile church and then he kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And, uh, that's when Priscilla and Aquila had left Rome because there was a persecution and then they were out of Rome for a few years and they were allowed back. When they came back, there was a bit of argy-bargy because the Gentiles had had the church to themselves. Jews are trying to get back in again and it's not working out. So he's writing to Jews and he's saying, he's writing to Gentiles. He's saying, hey, you need to be compassionate towards the Jews. There's a lot of stuff in the earlier chapters of Rome about his heart for the Mm. the Jews. I think it's Romans 9. I would be willing to die if my Jewish brothers and sisters could come. So there's this heart. He's pleading to the Gentiles to say, well, you let the Jews back in. He's also writing to the Jews and saying, hey, you've got to – you know god's kind of trying to call you to be one body so that's his heart and he will he while he's fatherly and compassionate and saying overlook one another's faults and so on he's doing it because he's trying to blend the body he's saying yep. just cut each other some slack so that you can live in unity yeah. and he's bold about that he won't he won't be soft around that mm. um he's courageous because he's so passionate about that
1: yeah and sometimes we we have to preach boldly, don't we? Because mm. it, it's it's not even something that we have to muster up, really. We, if we just believe in what we're speaking about, if we believe it's true, well, then why wouldn't we just yes. speak it out as if it's true? It's yes, like sure. saying that, you know, that curtain over there is black.
2: Mm.
1: It is black. And I can speak that boldly because it's truth. Yes. So, you know, yep. if we speak truth… It's all good. Yep. And so, you know, Paul goes on to to talk about this, that um, he's been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 17 he says, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. Paul is always giving the glory to Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, he... And and we see that in, in, in Peter as well, and, and James, and all these guys that, you know, that people want to give them the glory. People, oh, you know, want to bow down in front of them. What? Well, hey, hey, don't do that. You mm. know, the, let's give the glory to Jesus. And that that's a really important thing as well, isn't it? To rem- to remind us, who whoever you are in the church, if you're in any sort of leadership.
0: It's not about us. It's not about you. That's no. right, Jeff.
1: We're just playing our part and yep. doing our bit.
0: It's always about our gift. We were talking <laughs> about this in a break earlier today. We were talking about the spiritual gifts. The gifts are not for us. The gifts are for the edifying of the body of Christ. Yeah. We are. Um, Jesus puts it this way. He says, "When you know, you're just merely servants. You've got to have that attitude of I'm here to serve the master. I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve. Yep. That, that should be our overarching value in, in leadership. In any capacity in church life, not just in leadership, in any area of church life, we here to serve.
1: Yep, for sure. So, I don't know. There's, there's not a whole lot more that goes on in this letter. Uh, this, yeah, this letter. Um, Paul, no, the Hall greetings almost. is
0: going to be chapter sixteen. I was thinking it was fifteen, but I've got oh, it's yeah, my gre- head. Greeting. Oh, that's just my <laughs> yeah. head not quite right. At the end of the day, after having a cold, that's the next chapter where he greets everybody.
1: Yeah. So, Paul. Kind of almost finishes his letter here. Yes, almost. Yep. And then in chapter sixteen, he he does all these greetings that. Yeah. Once once again, you know, you, you could just look at them as, um, I don't know if this, this chapter will be in any of the, um, any of the uh, podcasts that we.
0: Chapter sixteen. Oh, very likely. Yeah, because there's a whole list of names <laughs> and there's doctrine in there as well. Yeah, but I think you know to place this Paul. You know, we've talked about Paul's travel plans, going to Jerusalem in the book of Acts already. This is, you know, Paul hasn't been to Rome. He's planning to, this is where he's saying at the end of chapter six, chapter 15, I've done my work in these regions. I'm finished. I feel like I've established the churches in Greece and Turkey. Now I want to come to Rome and I want to go to Spain. He wants to spread the gospel further west. Um, But before I come to Rome, I've got a gift. I've got an offering. I've got to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. I'm asking you to pray for me when I get there that I'll be rescued from the people. And, you know, what was it? Was it say, um, he specifically says, pray also that I will be, that pr- pr- pray that I'll be rescued from those in Judea who refuse to obey God. Pray also that those believers will be willing to accept the donation I'm taking to Jerusalem. This gives us a little insight into two things. First of all, would the was the prayer effective? Because in reality, Paul ended up in prison in Ju- Judea. Mm-hmm and made his way to Rome that way. But secondly, um, we don't know anything about what happened to this offering. It's not mentioned anywhere. Yeah. We actually, some scholars think that maybe the Jews weren't willing to accept the offering mm. because there's such, because when he does show up in Jerusalem and we, you and I talked about it on earlier today, but in our previous podcast about when he shows up there and they say, Oh, all the Jews, think that you're, you know, you're telling Jews everywhere yeah, yeah. not to preach. The offering is not mentioned anywhere. Yeah. It's mentioned all through Paul's letters, but it's not mentioned in Acts. So some scholars think it's interesting that it, they showed up with this offering, and it makes me wonder if it was ever accepted. Or whether they go, you know, and, and some scholars think maybe it wasn't. Yeah. Paul Luke doesn't mention it in his right. Luke doesn't mention this offering, but Paul's willing to say, please accept it. Because he saw it as a peace. He saw it as you Jews are suffering persecution. I want to bring an offering from the Gentile churches to show you that we're all one family. But I wonder whether or not the Jews didn't get it. Maybe. Yeah. Um, So this is Paul's heart. So if that's the case, you've got to wrestle with, well, that's what he's asking them to pray, but maybe it didn't happen. Or maybe it didn't happen the way they thought it would happen. Yeah. Because he wasn't rescued from, well, you could argue he was rescued. He didn't die, but he ended up in prison for a long time and shipwrecked and so on before he finally got to Rome. But he did get to Rome in the end.
1: I mean, he does well to to still have the offering with him.
0: Yes, through all the
1: trials he's been through.
0: Yes, exactly. Well, he actually takes he refers to this in other letters, and he says this offering is a big deal to him, and he takes other men with him from several other churches, from Thessalonica, Philippi. He has representatives, and he says we're all traveling together, so no one can accuse us of what we're doing with this offering. So, um, I don't, what I don't imagine it was, was a huge amount of, um, you know, gold being traveled around like a chest of gold because that wouldn't have worked. So by this time, the scholars say there probably was some kind of banking system where they would cash in in one place and they would receive some kind of medallion or something that they would be able to cash in in Jerusalem. That's makes sense that the Romans did that, um, to prevent, uh, piracy on the road because that was a big deal. So, yeah, but but in, the, in still there's this accountability. This is a lot of money. Mm. This is a significant amount of money, which is all the more why I think it's strange that it's not mentioned. Yeah. Because it would have bailed the Jews, given the Jews a lot of resource. Yeah. Mm. So um, that's kind of the context of where this Romans letter fits in.
1: I wonder if there's any mention um, about that in any other uh, historical books or – Yeah, I don't know. I
0: don't know enough about those scrolls, further church writings because there's a lot of church father writings that refer to things. There's a lot of tradition about what Paul did after he went to Rome and supposedly he was released. And like we assume when he shows up in Rome at the end of the book of Acts that we don't know what happens. It just says he was testifying for two years. Mm. Like you said previously, we don't know if he ever went on trial before Caesar there. I think church historians say he did, but then he was released for a period of time. But eventually, he ended up being back in Rome again,
2: mm.
0: and that was the second time he went back to Rome that he was martyred. Not that first time at the end of Book of Acts, but that's all extra biblical because it's not recorded yeah, within the sure. within the Scripture. Mm. So we're left in a speculatory mindset. Yeah, and I don't. I probably should do some more research into the Church Fathers and some of that stuff. I don't know enough about it. So that's kind of like the end of his Book of Romans. I mean, we've just yeah. done one chapter today, but then he's going to give this greeting. Yeah. One, one thing that's worth noting here is that he actually starts 16 verse 1 by saying, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who was a deacon in the church. Well, that's right. Yeah, and that so is worth mentioning. Phoebe was charged with taking the letter to Rome. And a lot of scholars say the mm. one who took the letter was the one who read the letter and taught the letter. So right there, he's a woman who's probably quite successful. She's maybe on a mission to Rome for business or something. And Paul's going, on the way, take, take this, this letter. Explain it
1: to explain them. Explain it to
0: them. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Imagine explaining Imagine, explain Romans, Romans. heck! <laughs> I imagine that. I mean, Romans is the most densely theological yeah. book in the whole Bible. I think. My goodness. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be charged with trying to explain Romans to, yep. to everybody who had every question. That's right,
1: and you know, in those greetings, there's there's heaps of people mentioned, isn't there? There's there's
0: there's a lot l- of women. Plenty mentioned. of women mentioned. There it, is. You know, there's so. even some there's even some women mentioned that church church fathers have tried to change their name to make them men. Oh really? Yep. And oh. now they know that they were actually Come women. On. Yep, that happened throughout church history. Some of the names were masculinized and now his story has shown that, no, they were women.
1: What about where it says, uh, my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked hard for the Lord. How do you change that? How do you to- change that?
0: No, it's it's one of the ones that's the apostle. Might be Andronicus. There's one. Can you find it? I know oh, we're, we're referencing. Herodian. We're referencing. Um,
1: Trephosa.
0: Yeah, one of those is a woman. Um, Syncritus. This
1: says those women. So both of them are yep. women.
0: Yep. It's one of the ones. It's one of the ones that Rufus. specifically mentions oh, that's a bloke. Yep. an apostle. Yeah, Rufus is a guy and his mother. Yep.
1: Well, I guess the question is, Rowan, what is a woman?
0: And on that note, let's let's end it. (laughs) We'll end it. Hey, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Jeff. Okay. Thank you, Pastor Ryan. It's great. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.